This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. In this week's episode, Bro sits down with Ted Benna. He's the father of the 401k. They're going to talk about how he came up with the idea and even got the U.S. government on board. Benna is also going to talk about his new book, 401ks and IRAs for Dummies, and why he thinks Roths are oversold, and his retirement planning advice for business owners. And because they had such a long chat, we figured all that and nothing more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. In 2020, 60 million Americans participated in a 401k plan, according to the Investment Company Institute. And as of June of this year, those plans held more than $7 trillion in assets. And that doesn't include the additional trillions that were in 401ks, but have since been rolled over into IRAs. But when paragraph K was added to section 401 of the IRS code back in 1978, the purpose was not to create an account that would be the foundation of retirement savings for millions of Americans. In fact, the story of how 401ks became so popular starts with one man, Ted Benna, who is considered the father of the 401k. He's also the author of five books, including the recently published 401ks and IRAs for dummies. Ted Benna, welcome to Motley Fool Answers. Robert, it's uh, definitely a pleasure to be here with you today. So thank you. Sure. Our pleasure as well. So let's set the scene. It's a Saturday in 1979 or 1980. I've read differing accounts. And you're in your office. You were a benefits consultant back then. And you were working on a project for one of your clients, which was a bank in the Philadelphia area. What happened next? Well, I was working on that project and working through what they wanted to accomplish here without getting buried in details. I realized, you know, the best way to do that was to utilize this Section 401k. And as you mentioned, you know, that legislation was passed in 1978. It was only a page and a half long, Robert, and it didn't become effective until January of 1980. And, uh, because it you know, wasn't expected to be a big deal, there wasn't anyone running around the country setting up 401k plans. You know, it was in the fall of 1980, you know, that I looked at this. And, you know, the two things actually that I, you know, uh, brought to the forefront uh, and included were matching employer contribution. You know, if you put money in, you could get a matching amount from your company. And it, as an employee, you would able, be able to put money in pre-tax yourself. You know, this section was really intended only for employer contributions, but there wasn't anything there saying that you couldn't do a match or that employees couldn't put money in pre-tax. So I chose to take the more aggressive interpretation. (laughs) And the pre-tax part was important. Of course, everyone loves pre-tax, but back then the highest tax rate was 70%. So that was very compelling. Uh, And you almost had to have employees participate because by law, these plans could not uh, overly benefit higher compensated employees. So you kind of had to incentivize the lower paid employees to participate. That's exactly. And that's, I realized, you know, when I was dealing with this bank client that the lower paid employees probably were not going to participate to the extent needed without adding some additional incentive. And that's when I layered the match on top and said, well, okay, now if you do this, you'll get a tax break, but you're going to get some more money from the bank, you know, if you do that and hoping that might work. And, you know, just as a side note, the bank attorney turned it down. <laughs> he didn't want them to <laughs> something that had never been done. So we actually did the first plan in our own little consulting company. And that plan became effective January 1, 81. 
that was the first 401k savings plan in the country. Something I've read, and you can tell me whether this is true or apocryphal, is that um, part of the thing, something that sort of helped get the government seal of approval was that one of your clients um, had a role in the then very new Reagan administration who put you in contact with someone in the Treasury Department. Is that true? Yeah, that's uh, definitely uh, the case. Uh, you know, we were able to get introduced to uh, Treasury uh, officials. It was actually Drew Lewis. He was most famous you know, for the old gray hairs that know that for firing the traffic controllers. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, yeah, no, I remember that. I remember that. Uh, and he, uh, you know, he introduced us over to Treasury. And as a result of that, I was able to discuss with the person doing the regulations at Treasury. Because the key to this was, what were the regulations coming out of Treasury you know, going to allow? And, uh, you know, that I was able to get into good dialogue with this guy about, uh, you know, the reasons this should be supported. I you know, didn't get any indication, you know, what the regulations would actually include. And, you know, fortunately, when they came out in the fall of 81, why they supported both a matching contribution and employee pre-tax savings. So from my research, it looks like that you were ministering maybe about 50 plans by 1982 or so. How, how long did it take for 401k to really catch on? This, this has got to be amazing to people today because, you know, you pick up books and you pick up ads and you hear people talking on TV or pastors preaching sermons or whatever. And they mentioned 401k. Well, we couldn't get any attention for this thing. I mean, uh, you know, uh, the idea of saving, really saving for retirement was totally foreign. And uh, we worked hard. You're trying to get the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. And uh, finally, the New York Times published an article that, you know, got things uh, rolling in a big way. From what I read, that some the reaction to some of those early articles was that uh, people were calling or sending email. Well, there wasn't email back then. Sending letters to the journalists saying this is totally illegal and it's a loophole. It's going to be closed. Yeah, actually, the first uh, person that uh, newspaper writer did an article was Craig Stock for the Philadelphia Inquirer, and uh, you know he came out, interviewed me. He was a young new writer, you know, on the financial beat. Uh, you know, ran the article over the weekend and his phone started ringing on Monday telling him, you know, this thing isn't illegal. And I know, got to know Craig pretty well over the years and said, well, you know, I went back and checked with the IRS and, you know, they acknowledged that, you know, it may be possible. So he figured at least, uh, you know, he had done the work he needed to do. So uh, despite being the father of the 401k, you're also known to having these somewhat mixed feelings about your creation. And you were quoted in a Market Watch article from several years ago as saying, I would blow up the system and restart with something totally different. So how did 401ks begin to deviate from your original vision and, and basically who's to blame? Okay, let me mention the fact that that article either intentionally or unintentionally misquoted what I said. Okay? Fake news. Interesting. Got it. <laughs> the writer was thrilled because, man, it caught and uh, got a lot of attention. I was really talking about killing up the investment structure, not the whole 401k. And I was talking about killing it up for two reasons. One, it had become much too complex. And the other is the cost of participants became much higher than what it should have and I have another book, uh, you know, that I wrote uh, three years ago, you know, uh, 401k 40 years later. 
And I detail in that what happened to fees. And the story's pretty ugly, you know, of what happened to fees. What's interesting to me is you've pointed out uh, in previous, in that book, as well as previous interviews, that, you know, the whole mutual fund industry was kind of, as you said, kind of a mom and pop industry. And it was really their use of 401ks that let them take off. And maybe you might say abusive 401ks. Well, exactly. Uh, you know, what, what happened, and this was the first stage, you know, of creating a fee problem and, and all these suits, you know, that we're seeing today. You know, I mentioned in the book, uh, AT&T, as an example, uh, you know, I was interviewing their HR director from one of the early books I did, and we got into what was called bundling. You know, in the early days, participants only paid investment fees. You know, the administrative and all the other fees were paid by the employer. When we got into bundling, what really got bundled were the fees with participants paying them all. So what happened was AT&T, you know, the HR director was under pressure to cut money from his budget. So he was able to shift the plan from institutional investing to one of the big mutual fund companies, pass all the fees off to the participants, which took about $100,000 of expenses off his budget. You know, that was the first thing that happened. Then we had something else later on, you know, that's another whole story. And so fees are obviously a big part of it. So, so let's move on actually from the history to your book. Um, by the way, I've, I've long recommended the dummies books when it comes to personal finance. You wrote a good book on 401ks back in 2002. Your new one here is updated, included IRAs. Um, so it's an excellent book, very thorough, very readable. And you do talk about fees. So how do people determine the fees they're paying in their 401ks? It took a long battle to get fee disclosure because the um, really abusive providers just totally fought and resisted it. But participants legally uh, are supposed to get a statement from their employers when they sign up for the 401k explaining the fees. Uh, So first of all, make sure you get that. Now, the ones that tend to be, you know, have higher fees, it's not real transparent. I mean, it's pretty hard to, you know, to figure those statements out. So if you get one of those statements and you have trouble figuring it out, you know, you might ask somebody, you know, to help you who who's able to do that. But, uh, you know, pretty still some pretty ugly stories. I mean, I can, you know, give you one as an example. I ran into Robert over the last three years. My focus has been primarily on helping the small employers that don't have retirement plan to find better ways to do that. And for many of them, 401k is not the right answer. You know, and I include that in the book, you know, that there are IRA models, you know, that small employers can utilize. And, uh, you know, here I'm talking primarily about solo entrepreneurs and small businesses, probably where the owners earn less than 100000 And when I was working on this, I had a small business with eight employees contact me and said, hey, would you look, we have a 401k, would you look at it? We're not really pleased with it. Well, I found out, you know, the employer is paying 1,500 in fees every year, plus additional when special things had to be done. Robert, participants were paying 2.75% in fees. Okay, Holy cow. And this was with one of the largest 401k providers, you know, one of the top 10, okay? So they took one of the IRA-based plans shifted over, eliminated all the employer fees. Participants' costs went down to 0.15 from 2.75%. That's 
many years of additional retirement income, you know, it's being blown through fees. I mean, it's, it's horrible. It's ugly. Yeah. When you calculate, I can't imagine the impact of, of fees of 2.75%. I mean, you just look at the impact of fees of one and one and a half percent compounded over a career. You're talking tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. You're, you're talking over 20, 30 year period, you have 50% more, you know, accumulation, you know, Hey, one, one thing I, I mentioned in the book, otherwise, uh, one way you can always improve your uh, investment return is to reduce fees. <laughs> you know, that's a guaranteed way of, you know, increasing your return. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the mini employer market is tremendously underserviced. Uh, you know, I mentioned in the book that there are four different types of 401ks now, three different types of IRAs. So, you know, figuring out what is best is extremely challenging and doing it right makes a heck of a lot of difference. And uh, so one of the services I've mentioned in the book is that for $200 one-time shot, you know, I'll help a small employer you know, work through and make that decision. But there's a limit to how much of that I can do. So as, as I was completing the dummies book, I was approached by a new startup entity. Uh, the name is Penelope. P-E-N-E-L-O-P-E, and it's .co is their website. They're going to take what I've learned over the last three years, and their startup is um, high-tech, very innovative, full-platform administrating for 401ks. But in the process, they'll take what I've learned, and the focus will be helping these small employers pick the right plan not just a plan. And the reason the financial community generally isn't interested, you know, in this segment of the market, there's not enough money. You know, they, they can't make money on it. And, you know, the advisors who are in it, typically, like the story I mentioned earlier, they're inappropriately selling 401k plans, you know, when there may be a better alternative. Um, in your book, you also discuss both traditional and Roth retirement accounts. Uh, and Roths are all the rage these days, largely because uh, many investors expect tax rates to be higher in the future. However, you believe Roths are oversold. Why do you think so? For, for a number of reasons. Uh, the first is, for years, ever since Roth was introduced, you know, decades ago, you know, the pros, and I won't mention any names, would say, do you expect tax rates to go up or down? You know, well, 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 then you'll put your money in the Roth. Well, as I pointed out in the book, tax rates are actually lower today than when rates, you know, Roth started. So, you know, people who followed that advice over the last decade didn't work out for them. You know, that's one fact. Another one is that most people, when they retire, have significantly less taxable income than they do when they're working. You know, those earning less than 100000 you know, uh, certainly, uh, you know, they're going to, in all likelihood, have significantly less taxable income. So tax rates would have to really escalate. Two other reasons, too. Uh, You know, my firm belief is that when you're starting in the workforce and saving to build a nest egg, it's very much to your benefit to build it faster rather than slower because life's unpredictable. When you're talking about what might happen 20, 30 years ago, well, you might lose your job in your 50s. You may have major health issues. You may have a divorce or spouse that dies. You have various things. You have the COVID disruption. Uh, so if that happens and you, you know, 
you're able to save more money if you're doing pre-tax and if you're doing it after tax. So you're better off if you're in your 50s and those kind of things happen. If you have a 40 or 50% bigger nest egg, you know, at that point in time. And only the last factor is political risk. I don't trust the politicians. Someday they're likely to tax this thing. You know, I could very well see them saying, you got too big of a deal, too great a deal. You're too big a tax rate. We're going to tax half of this tax-free buildup. The example I use is Social Security. You know, for years, Social Security was never taxable, your benefits. Now, up to 85% of your Social Security is taxable. And I had to laugh, uh, Robert, when, I mean, this was really funny. When I was writing the book, I went to IRS's website to just confirm, you know, what income levels, you know, you, you get hit with the tax. And it says only 85% of your Social Security <laughs> benefits are taxable. And people don't realize that when they're paying their Social Security tax when they're working, they're already paying income tax on that Social Security tax. They're already being, you know, double taxed up front on it. Yeah, pretty, pretty nasty. <laughs> yes. And, and on top of that, you know, you, the, the amount of your tax, Social Security that's taxed is based on your income. So there are these sort of like Social Security taxation brackets. But unlike other tax brackets, they don't change every year. They don't go up with inflation. So you don't have to, it doesn't take a whole lot of income to subject your Social Security to taxation these days. Right. Correct. So if, uh, let's say you were put uh, in charge of all retirement savings in America, you're made the retirement savings czar. What would you change about the current system to enhance retirement security for Americans? Uh, well, there are a couple of things. First of all, when I answer that type of question, I do it from a spectrum of what politically may be do doable. You know, the idea of just scrapping everything, you know, starting over from scratch isn't political reality. So, you know, things I've been promoting for a number of years now uh, that are definitely politically um, doable are, one, requiring all employers that have a 401k to automatically enroll their employees and to automatically bump up their contributions annually with the fact that, you know, the employees can reverse that if they want. The next is to require all employers to set up a payroll deduction retirement program for their employees. You know, it could be IRA based, you know, very easy to do. And the reason that I promote that is I found over the years, biggest benefit of 401k is turning spenders into savers, you know, by making that the first priority. And for most of us, including me, when I, like you, had four kids and a mortgage and, you know, all those expenses, yeah, I would have never done, you know, what I would have done without 401k. Uh, you know, so, you know, you have, uh, you know, that factor at work. Uh, and there are two other things. Uh, one is putting a lock on when people change jobs. The money has to stay invested for retirement. That, you know, it doesn't make sense for a 30-year-old to get this paperwork when they change jobs and say, well, you could take the 10000 now, buy a new car, you know, take a vacation or whatever. You know, uh, it's too tempting. And then the last thing is most people who are retiring, you know, need to lock up some guaranteed income when they retire. One way to do that is, is with a fixed income guaranteed life annuity. And so I've recommended maybe 
providing that the first thousand or two thousand of lifetime guaranteed annuity wouldn't be taxable, you know, during retirement to include, you know, those who are retired or moving into retirement to get more serious about doing that. Now, you point out in your book that um, thanks to, I think it's the SECURE Act, it's going to be easier for 401ks to offer these annuities. Uh, and you like the idea of annuities, but you say in the book that you're, it's probably not the best choice to stick with the 401k annuity. Yeah, I, frankly, I'm just going to say I think that's a crappy idea. Primarily <laughs> promoted by insurance companies. And my first job was in home office of insurance company. I used to calculate the rates you know, that were built for um, making those type of annuity purchases and definitely in the favor of the insurance companies heavily. Now, the thing that's in that act, you know, that I strongly support is requiring that participants be given, uh, starting, I think it's 2022, if I remember right, something that says, based on what you've already saved, and if you continue saving this, here's what your income at retirement might be. You know, the idea of a lump sum nest egg, I mean, that doesn't really connect to anything. So, you know, these type of projections that convert and say, well, here's what you, know, you might get as an income certainly will be a lot more useful, you know, at helping individuals uh, maybe get on a better track for retirement. Yeah. The other thing I like about that is they're calculating that income is if, if you retire at 67, which is higher than the current average retirement age. And I personally think that we as a country have to uh, just accept that people should be retiring later, not only for financial reasons, but uh, I think there's a lot of question about whether retirement's actually healthy for people if you're going to spend the last 30 years of your life without a job. Hey, our, our creator didn't create us to spend 20, 30 years doing nothing. Right. And, and this, actually, this is the problem. Uh, you know, when Social Security first started, uh, you know, back in that era, life expectancy was 10 to 20 years. Now, if you talk about 30-year retirement and you use 3% inflation rate, it takes five times the amount of money. Wow. Rather than three times. You know, so that's why you know, this is much more difficult uh, you know, when you're talking about hey, maybe retiring in your mid-50s or late 50s, early 60s, and having a you know, stream of income will last uh, you know, the rest of your life. Yeah, and I should point out that if you don't mind me saying, you're almost 80 years old and here you are publishing a new book, so good for you. Let me tell you, guess what? what? It's today. Today? <laughs> Happy birthday to the father of the 401k. <laughs> and you're spending it talking to us. I feel so privileged. <laughs> uh, so for the final question, let's go back to the beginning um, and your creation of the 401k. And I know you've been asked this before, uh, but have you made money from the 401k? Did you try to patent it? We, we did. That was uh, something we tried very early and we were told uh, by our attorneys we couldn't. And, uh, you know, I was asked that one time on NPR in an interview and I don't know where it came from, just off the top of my head. I said, well, it'd be all right if each participant sent me a quarter. <laughs> did anyone do it? You got there about 40 million at the time, all right, participants. So I went out and got the mail about a week later, and it was heavier than normal. So there were two envelopes with quarters, and there's one 25-cent check. 
<laughs> they tracked down my address somehow and sent it. You know, I still have the check somewhere, or somebody's bank account all screwed up. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Um, so at the end of the, the 2018 book that you mentioned previously, 401k, 40 years later, um, you request that if anyone who's benefited from a 401k feels so inclined, they can make a contribution to Compassion. Um, and that's an organization that helps lift uh, children in the developing world out of poverty. Um, sounds like a very worthy cause, and I'll definitely be making a contribution. And I hope that our listeners who have benefited from the tax advantages and employer match in a 401k will do the same uh, to honor you for creating the 401k and, and now as a birthday gift as well. Well, that would be great. I uh, you know, know a couple of the board members who had been on the organization and uh, you know, they uh, do a fantastic job, you know, over 80% of the funds, uh, you know, go directly to those kind of needs. And, you know, you can su support a child monthly, you know, it's one possibility. And then the others are just number of programs. I mean, they, uh, you know, help women who have been abused, you know, to be able to become productively engaged and, uh, you know, all kinds of different uh, projects. Certainly a ton of them out there. Uh, you know, they don't have to look hard to find opportunities, you know, clean water, I mean, all kinds of, you know, different projects. So yeah, that would be a blessing definitely to do that. And the website is compassion.com if you'd like to go and make a donation in Ted's name. So let's wrap things up here. Our guest today has been Ted Benna, the author of the recently published 401ks and IRAs for dummies, which again is very thorough, very readable. Ted, thanks so much for joining us and for all the work you've done over your career. It's been such a privilege to speak with you. You're welcome. Well, that's the show. It's edited Seasons Greetings Lee by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. Uh, we have a pretty big announcement next week, so definitely you'll want to tune in. But until then, for Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Mm -hmm.